What happens when a swimmer goes off to college for an engineering degree, but after a number of years as an engineer, gives it up to be drawn back into swimming as a coach and technique instructor, and begins applying engineering practices to swim practices? We'll find out shortly on this episode of Swim Talk. Stay tuned. Comments and opinions of the hosts and guests are their own and do not reflect those of their employers, friends, families, or casual acquaintances. Hello and welcome to Swim Talk A to B, everything you need to know about swimming from A to B and anything else we want to talk about. I'm Dana Abbott, the A, and joining us from Bay City, Texas is the show's co-host, Bob Button, who is the B in A2B. Bob, how's it going today? Never better. Our guest this week on Swim Talk is Coach Lauren Cussigy. Lauren has got experience at the club, summer league, and master's level of swim coaching. He's also been a mechanical engineer for a Fortune 500 company, but found himself drawn back into swimming. Well, Lauren, welcome to Swim Talk. How are you doing today? Doing great, Dana. Thank you. Lauren and I used to share deck space down at Dad's Club here in Houston. Lauren, give us a little bit about your background, including uh, your competitive experience and a brief rundown of your coaching history up through now. Sure. Well, I spent my teen years in El Paso, Texas. I was pretty late to the game when it came to uh, competitive swimming. I had the good fortune in El Paso to um, have access to a private coach whose name was C.J. Johnson with the Water Ranch. He basically uh, gave me private lessons at the school where my mom taught before I joined the swim team. And I like to tell the kids a lot. I remember doing hundreds on a three-minute interval and suffering. Um, <laughs> I think we've been there. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm there now. I'm there now. I'm on 50s. So, um, I was about 14 when that started happening. Things progressed pretty quickly for me in freestyle. By the time I was 17, I was swimming quad eight times in freestyle and won the Junior Olympics in El Paso. And I swam on and off in college, but not on a college team. I really wasn't fast enough to swim in college anyway. So when I went to U of H, I swam masters as often as my schedule would allow. I had the good fortune in my 20s to really figure out how to swim correctly. And I owe that almost entirely to Coach Emmett Hines. It's awesome. Uh, really miss the guy. Yeah, he um, he went through a, an enormous transition. We had what I would call traditional Masters workouts at U of H. It was just pounding the yards. Uh, he even at one time hosted uh, monster workouts on one Friday night a month. And monster workout went from 5.30 to 9 p.m. I actually fell asleep during one of those workouts. And I swam <laughs> right into the wall and woke up and realized that I had been dreaming. I had no idea I was still in the pool, but I was still swimming and breathing. And well, at that point in time, it was time to get out. <laughs> he stopped doing that kind of stuff after he got involved with total immersion and just instantly changed the way he coached. Yes, and it was a tough. Did. It was tough at the beginning to go through that transition. But man, did it ever help me. I probably spent a good year and a half after that transition going to workouts where he would only allow me to take one stroke of butterfly in the middle of the pool. We did a phenomenal amount of freestyle drills. I was a horrible backstroker and those freestyle drills just instantly helped my backstroke. All the stuff about body position. So that 
that is really where I made my transition. And then I started really trying to understand the sport more myself. Going through that transition, being coached by him, it helped tremendously. Uh, I was really started trying to understand what was going on at Stanford. At the time, Stanford was very proud that their incoming freshmen had no shoulder pain by the time Thanksgiving rolled around. So clearly this doesn't have to be. We don't all have to have shoulder problems. I worked as an engineer for about 14 years after graduating college. I always dabbled a little bit in swimming somehow, uh, volunteering part-time or coaching part-time or doing private lessons. And then in 1999, I finally decided to make the jump and leave engineering, basically take care of, be the primary caretaker for my two boys and, and to take on coaching swimming as as a full to part-time occupation. That's pretty interesting. The background you had as as a young swimmer in your mid-teens almost parallels mine. I can certainly appreciate where you came from there. Looking at the world of competitive swimming these days and going back an awful lot of years, it seems like there's an almost universal recipe for producing competitive swimmers, which uh, ingredients would be aerobic conditioning, technique development, uh, acquisition of flexibility and strength. Then there's also the mental components, you know, the motivation, the psychological. What do you feel are the biggest impediments in achieving success for most age group club and high school swimmers today? Well, I don't have the opportunity too much to work with the teens. I, I love that age group. Uh, when I coach for Cougs uh, here in Houston, I coach the junior group, and those are the, the fast, uh, middle to faster uh, 10 to 14-year-olds. Really enjoy that uh, level. I really think the biggest impediment is, is honestly, I think it's it's uh, just swimming too much. You know, they, they have to have a range of, of abilities, you know, go out and get on the playground, go out and do something else, kind of explore your body in other ways. When I was, you know, in El Paso, it seemed like we all had the feeling of getting burned out around 16 or 17. And when I started getting involved with youth swimming here in Houston, it seemed like the kids were burning out at around 12 and 14. I worked with a talented uh, 13-year-old a couple of years ago, and she had never missed a practice since the age of eight, according to her mother, and was swimming two-a-days at the age of 12 and 13 and stuff like that. I don't completely agree with that. And in her case, anyway, she swam out of fear when she was younger than that. So she would just look over to the lane next to her and simply swim faster. And her coaches never really reined in her technique when she was younger. So she was uh, frustrated when she entered her mid-teens and, and wanted some help. There's no question about it. I'm a technique guy. I just feel like swimmers, be they youth swimmers or masters or triathletes, should really understand this sport and see themselves swim and have workouts that are designed around their needs. Quick question uh, related to that. The so-called country club sports, tennis, golf, swim, private lessons uh, are the norm for the for the people that are trying to be a high achiever in that sport. What's the, the cost of that doing to the rest of the kids in these sports lagging behind if they can't afford the, the service you offer? One of my sons was completely into basketball. In the basketball world, private lessons are a little less expensive, if not significantly less expensive, probably a third to a half of what a, a good swim coach might uh, charge. It is tough, you know, the money aspect. Our family was fortunate. I could pay for my kids to get private lessons uh, for basketball. Um, and I told him, I think what you're getting after, I said, look, you, you've got to do three things if you want to be good in basketball. You've got to be on a basketball team. You've got to get some decent kind of strength training or body exercise training. And you have to have a private coach once in a while. You got to have somebody take that really detailed look at you. We'll be right back after this. If you're not a member of the American Swimming Coaches Association, what are you waiting for? 
ASCA is all about education and support for us swim coaches. Their World Clinic features the top coaches in our sport. Become a member and sign up for this year's online clinic at swimmingcoach.org. Lauren, what would be some of your favorite drills and or sets that that, uh, you like to work with? And it doesn't have to be just freestyle, but we're talking a lot of freestyle, so that's fine. I like progressive sets. I like a 600 chunk where you start off with a very basic drill, like sidekick, exploring your balance. The next, you go right into the next 200 where you add a more complex component that that individual swimmer themselves need. Uh, It might be working on the breath. It might be working on the rotation timing. And then finally, swim. Have that last 200 swim. I think that that progressive, it's almost like doing a mini string of lessons in one 600. You know, you're always refreshing your body about what's important by starting off with a basic but important um, component. So I like the progressions a lot. I do them myself. I think all sorts of kicking are great. Um, Single leg kicking for a flutter kick has been a relatively new, meaning maybe in the last five or six years, sort of experience for me and learning for me. I looked at what Oakville Aquatic Club in Canada was doing, and man, they sent a lot of swimmers to Canadian Nationals, and they do a phenomenal amount of kicking. And if you never try a single leg flutter kick, it's going to kick your butt the first few times, but you learn a lot from that. You learn in which direction that one leg is weaker, and again, it, it creates better swimmers, obviously. So uh, I think that my, my two big things that I come back to a lot here in recent years are great kicking, know how to kick correctly, and progressive sets. Now, Lauren, you just mentioned the single leg freestyle or flutter kick. Are you doing that only on the stomach? Are you doing it on the back, on the side, uh, top leg, bottom leg? Uh, can you elaborate? I personally do most of mine on my back. With, uh, with lesson swimmers, it kind of depends on what I see. It's, I'd say it's, uh, it could go either way. Um, I, I've never tried it during sidekick. Now that we're talking, we've coached it that way, but it's always on the back or on the or in, in body position prone. I would imagine if you ever did experiment with side kicking, you'd probably have to choose the bottom leg uh, simply because of the interaction at the surface. Yeah, probably. I think the other part of swimming that I like, and again, I got to tell you, this is a habit passed down from Emmett, is manipulation of stroke count. When you force a swimmer to go to lower stroke counts, it's only beneficial most of the time. And it's hard especially for those that have never done it before. But that was my really my breakthrough when I swam with Emmett is he kept forcing me to go lower and lower stroke counts. We had some very creative sets um, where, you know, it was just, just wasn't an option. And it's impossible the first few times, right? Because you're used to certain habits. And I remember when we got started on this path forward, my personal experience was when I counted, when I counted, I was at 17 strokes per length. And after a while, I don't know, a couple of years, maybe as much as a couple of years, it doesn't take that long now, fortunately, I got down to 12. And one day uh, at the end of workout, he just told everybody, okay, we're going to do a 10 minute swim. You choose free or back and you're just trying to hold your target stroke count. And at the time, my target was 12 and I held it the whole time. And at the end of workout, I got out and I chatted with him. I said, hey, coach, I was able to get 12. And he looks me dead in the eye and he says, you should be at nine. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and, and he was right. I mean, so I, I tried to achieve that. My, my, the fastest swimmer I've ever really coached two or three years ago, her stroke count was eight. Now, she didn't race at eight, but she was capable of eight, and it was still swimming, and it was great. You know, I think that's a good example. She Now, she nearly doubled her stroke count when racing, which was fine, mm-hmm. but that sort of always pushing that lower barrier, I think, is, is important. Yeah, I, I think it was 
Rebecca Adlington years ago, maybe 08, her coach over Great Britain was big on stroke count and, uh, hey, you've got to maintain this speed in workout, fewer strokes, maintain the same tough interval. And it was real hard for her, but it, it sure paid off with a gold medal in Beijing. Right. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, Jaunty uh, has, uh, has put on uh, USA Swimming website is analysis of Katie Ledecky before and after, uh, four years apart, looking at her performance during the 800 free. And she's she went, I don't know, about 10 seconds faster four years later, taking 14 fewer strokes. Nice. And even at that level, right, that can work. Now, she was, but she also got more consistent. Man, if you look at her swim and her stats, you know, the middle part of 800 was unbelievably consistent, whereas it had not been before. But I'm a stroke count freak. I mean, look what's going on in breaststroke. So, uh, yeah, Will Lacone and, uh, and others, they're getting their stroke counts down. Elephants never forget, but humans do. So this is a reminder that you're listening to Swim Talk A to B. We're talking about the stroke counts. I hear coaches telling their swimmer to increase their tempo all the time when I'm observing other coaches at practice if the kid's too slow. But I don't hear many people talking about stroke length or stroke count. And so it, it's like they're missing out, right? I think you can, they're missing out huge. I think that ought to be a primary component of most practices because you want to turn that back around. You can't have someone swimming like the freestyle in six strokes, right? There's there's probably no such thing. But to me, it's stroke count first, right? Low, low but reasonable. And then you add tempo, but you add tempo with, with caution, right? Meaning when you add tempo, you still want to get that great distance per stroke. You want to maintain as much of that distance you get out of every stroke as you add tempo, but not to the point of no return. Like one of the strategies I have is I have a very strict pacing guidelines and it's a, I mean, I'll send it to anybody. It's just a one page thing. The first one is get rid of big problems. And after that, here's how to pace. The first part I call it strict pacing. It's you must do some kind of pacing set at the stroke count that you as a swimmer and I agree on is good for you right now. And you cannot deviate. So if a swimmer is swimming, whatever, 2050s, and they're going down at 16 strokes, coming back at 17, they all have to be at 16 and 17. And what inevitably happens the first few times they try this is by the time they get to the third or the fourth 50, they're slower by a significant margin, four, five, six seconds. When you can do both of those, you hold your stroke count and you have minimal time deviation, then you can start adding strokes, but on purpose. My rule there is if you add two strokes each way on a 50, so four added strokes, you better be at least four seconds faster. You know, Bob Steele had something in his book, Games and Gimmicks. I think he called it's SWOLF, S-W-O-L-F, combination of swimming and golf. And you would score by adding your stroke count to your time. If you take too few strokes, you're going to go too, your time is going to go up too high. If you take too many strokes to go faster, then you've got more, more strokes in there. And so the number is going to be higher. So there's an intersecting line where you achieve optimal performance, at least as far as the game goes, which can lend itself towards what you're trying to achieve. One of the problems with the swimmers, if they're going, let's say they're going 16 strokes per length at, let's just make it nice round numbers for middle ability people of 30 seconds per 50. And now you say, well, you need to go faster. 
well, they're going to be taking more strokes. Or as they go through the set, they're going to get tired. They're going to start dropping their elbow and taking more strokes to go the same speed. So there's a lot to think about, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah. Yep, that's why golf's great. You're looking for that sweet spot where you can get maximum efficiency. Efficient speed is what I tell them. Right. Warren, this has been a great chat with you. Would you like to make a plug for your uh, service? Give us a website. Uh, sure. My website is techswimheights.com. Beginner to, I, I obviously like the more competitive ones, but I think beginners get a lot of benefit. Kids just love to see themselves on video. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of video analysis. I think that you just learn so much every single lesson. Stay tuned. Some talk will be right back. The best-selling new book, Eddie Reese, Coaching Swimming, Teaching Life, is available at Amazon.com and also at EddieReeseBook.com. After failing miserably at finding a strength training program that's worked for me over the years, I came across Coco Fit Club. And certainly, there must be other ones out there that do something similar, but I don't know what they are. I know that when I was young and we did Nautilus, it just completely crapped my swimming. This program is so much like swimming in the, even with the macro cycles. Uh, it took me a couple of years to kind of figure it out, but after approximately 24 workouts, two months, there's kind of a, an easing off, right, of the intensity. And then it starts up again. And I like the way that it's planned out, but still allows for individual faults or strengths. Like swimming should be, right? You're standing as a coach over a group of swimmers and you have a goal event way out there, some kind of championship meet, but you want to do the right thing for each individual swimmer as well. Basically, the three main components of a good strength program are pace, right? There's another swimming thing in that each repetition takes about five seconds. It's that very consistent pace. It's not always five seconds. Sometimes it changes by a few percentage points, and sometimes it's excruciating on the way back down. That comes back down so slow, you know, that's where some muscle building goes on. You're talking about eccentric contractions? Exactly. So sometimes there's a hold time at the top, and then the eccentric contraction sometimes is slow. Sometimes it's, it's imperceptibly different. That pace builds strong lean muscle. The, the second component is time under tension. If you get about, about the 40-second mark, 40 to 60 seconds is the range. Swimmers and most of us normal humans are not going for power lifting and really shouldn't be. We're going for that building strength. And the third component is, well, variation, variation in load. I warn all of my male swimmers, like, don't be macho about this, right? The goal is not to be on a straight line up to the maximum loads you can take. It's variation in load as well. And, you know, you got to have someone who's competent in the background setting out a plan and, and getting all that organized. The other thing I like about this system, you know, here's the engineer in me, right, is there's a lot of data tracking. So in January of 2017, I started absolutely doing 12 workouts a month. As soon as I dedicated myself to doing 12 a month, I did it for three years, three years and three months. I did it. 12 a month, no matter what, if I was traveling, it didn't matter. I got those 12 in. You start seeing a slight upward trend. This is after already having been in the program for three years. So I think that it's like for, for anybody, but really, I mean, I'm in my fifties. It's unusual for a 50 year old to get stronger and stronger a little bit with every passing year. And most of us are going to lose five to 10% of muscle mass after the age of 50. Right. The other thing is that in October, starting in October of last year, I think there's seven data points that are on a continuous upward trend. And maybe one of them is the same as the one before it, the strength score. 
my only change was to go to a plant-based diet. Mm. So this December, I'll be doing this program for six years. And that five-month time span has the most increase, the slope on the increase of, that, of those data points is greater in those last five months than it ever was throughout the rest of the program. And the only thing I changed was my diet. So you, do you talk diet to your uh, athletes, your your patrons? Yeah, I do. I do. It's a, with, with the teens, especially the teen girls. In my opinion, they tended to undereat. We just had to get to the point where at least the math had to work out. You know, you're expending this many calories, you got to take in this much as, as a baseline. Because if if they're not doing that, their bodies are suffering somewhere else. Right. We sometimes do fun and free commercials for our favorite organizations and businesses. If you'd like us to do a commercial for you and compensate us for it, let us know. Compensation can take the form of triple XL shirts, food, cash, or you could just surprise us. Send us an email at swimtalk.a2b at gmail.com. segment brought to you by Texas Traditions Restaurant in beautiful downtown Old Katy, Texas. Across the street and less than two football fields away from the world-famous No Label Brewing Company. Open for almost 20 years, this friendly family-owned and operated restaurant prepares food like mom used to make, including their award-winning meatloaf every Thursday. Stop by and have a tall glass of sweet tea with your meal or a timely brew from No Label. And tell Denise the guys from Swim Talk sent you. We hear a lot about core strength and stability in swimming, obviously the need to connect both ends of the body through the core. What are your thoughts on core strength and stability, and where are many or most of our swimmers with that? And what's the best way to improve core strength and stability as it relates to swimming? Well, I think I think for young kids, uh, if, we, if we think about kind of younger teens and, and middle teens, I think nearly every practice has to have a significant component be that sort of thing, whether it's doing monkey crawls on the ground or doing some kind of fun plank-related activity, standing tees, all of that stuff is really valuable. As an adult, I really look for those concepts to be part of a very organized program where it's clear that the technology and the way the program is organized in the background has some kind of a goal. It's not just a workout followed by another workout followed by another workout. I really think that probably every every group, every kid that's a competitive swimmer ought to be seeing some kind of focus strengthening activity at least every other day, right. at least. The crawls, things like that are, are great. We try to get those in as much as we can. The how matters. Talking to the kids, a lot of them don't understand the, the how we're doing things and the why we're doing things. Do you work with your kids on that to get them to understand the sport a little better? Raise their swimming IQ, so to speak. Absolutely. That's the goal of dry land training is you got to you got to teach the kids or the adults you're doing this so that this can happen in the water. Simple stuff like a streamline. That's just ability to control your body when you're tired. 
So if you're doing a plank or you're doing a streamlined stretch or a side plank or anything like that, you can have that as part of an isolated dry land program. You can have it part of like a station environment where you have station zero on the pool deck is something that is relevant to what they're going to do in lane one. Two minutes later is relevant to what they're going to do in lane two and so on and so on. I feel like there should always be a themed approach to every single workout and and not just every individual workout, but a plan for the future. I think that the comment about about we're giving them the workouts, but we're not explaining them or explaining to them why it's important to do it or just why we're doing it. In my very early days coaching, I was fortunate to spend a couple of years at the University of Texas where Paul Bergen was the women's coach. And he used to use a big easel with, uh, I don't remember now if it was a chalkboard or a dry erase board, but he would write down the practice and he'd get all the girls together and show them what they were doing that day. And he said, here's what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And this is how you're going to do it. And I think we maybe are in a hurry because of restrictions on pool time to get them in the water, get the workout done. And we don't do a lot of that essential explanation on why we're doing certain things, you know, what what the importance is of doing it. And I think that's a real good point both of you just made. Yeah, I completely agree. Hey, uh, let's go to the video analysis field that you're in. I'm most interested in your turnaround time, taking it from a session, a video session to how how long it takes you to complete your analysis and have it ready to go. Okay. So the video analysis... As soon as as smartphones came out, I I spent the money on the very first one because I wanted that thing poolside to be able to show swimmers themselves. I think it's been extremely successful. Very first remote video experience I had was with a former swimmer of mine. She went off to college and she called me up one day. She says, hey, I, I think I can break my university's 500 freestyle record, but we don't get any feedback, which is astonishing, but I'm sure that's not too uncommon. So we talked about it. I gave her some ideas for which angles from which to have her mom video her. She sent me a big fat videotape in the mail and we went back and forth on the phone a few times and she met her goal of breaking that record. Right now, I try to get as much good stuff done on deck as possible. I have a submersible iPad. The voice to text is pretty uh, silky fast when there's a Wi-Fi signal nearby. So I try to get the audio comments in there on deck. The format, honestly, I just completely copied from work that Jaunty Skinner has done and put on some USA Swimming presentations about looking at uh, how many cycles per length, what's the tempo, and just kind of exploring with the swimmer, hey, you know, what happens if? (laughs) What happens if you just make your your distance per stroke a silly half inch better? How much faster is that really? Let's look at the math. That part honestly does take some time because that involves going home, sitting down, doing some very boring time stamping. Um, so I probably spend maybe up to an hour and a half for a video of a 50 or 100 to kind of drill down and do some good work and give the, give the athlete a plan for the future. Okay. You had a, I think you said a 14-year experience in the world of engineering. Has that engineering background affected the way you teach or coach? And if so, how? I think it's positively affected the way I coach. And engineers are very much can-do people. Like there's no barrier to success, at least the ones where I worked, you know, it was always very much, here's a problem. There's never one that cannot be solved. I've wondered over the years, coaching swimming once in a while, I have a really tough cookie to crack. And and I I will ask myself, man, am I ever going to get through this swimmer? And then finally things flip around. Um, I think the analysis part of it, the, the desire to quantify performance beyond swim meets 
and Iron Man, those are singular events. And while you want to know what's going on there, I feel like the critical part is every day along the way. If you can control what you do every day along the way, the outcome is significantly more certain. You know, in engineering, we call it statistical process control. We didn't wait to finish and create the product at the end and then send it to a lab and test it. We would we would look at small processes along the way and keep those in control. And then the outcome, you know, was again, more certain. So yeah, I think that the engineering has helped me. I think I also had that mindset before I decided to get into engineering degree. I was interested in cars. I was always good at math. I kind of like math. Analysis of anything swimming around in my head, I think was just part of me. You're talking about in the engineering process, uh, going at small aspects of each problem and then applying that to the, the whole when you get a swimmer in the water, do you have a thought process about what you look at first? Are you just looking for overall smoothness? Are you looking at streamlining? Are you looking at underwater kicking? What's the thought process going through your head? Most times lately, I'm working with freestylers. They'll swim a little bit. I'll take baseline data. I'll always get that baseline data. I always want to take a video. I'll let them warm up a little bit. And I take the numbers, you know, how fast they are and what their stroke count is. And then I find myself saying the same things a lot now with the new swimmers. And I say, there are three non-negotiable rules for freestyle and in a lot of ways backstroke. Your spine has to be straight. Your spine has to be parallel to the surface. And you've got to eventually have power in the rotation. Outside of that, most everyone kind of has these gray areas. Your semi-catch-up is going to be different from mine. But that's my, my starting point. I'm, I'm always looking for that body position aspect. If the body position's off, everything else is a struggle. We always begin there. Agreed. You mentioned Emmett Hines earlier. Emmett was a fantastic coach, a tremendous loss to the coaching world uh, a few years back. But Emmett was a disciple of Terry Lachlan of Total Immersion Swimming. I had the opportunity to go and get certified as a TI coach up in New Paltz about 20 years ago. And the biggest thing I took away from that, which I'm seeing more of, is what you just referred to is the semi-catch-up. And we tend to see it more and more on distance swimmers. How much are you seeing that in middle distance? And has your approach to teaching freestyle included the semi-catch-up technique for a long time? Where, where do you stand with that? It's, it's been basically a part of what I coach a long time. I'm kind of a low stroke count freak because I always feel that if you can understand the stroke and do that low-ish but appropriate semi-catch-up stroke, then you can always create a sprinter out of that. But I, I feel like it's extremely difficult to go the other way around. If you have someone that has that more sprint stroke, then they're going to be really stuck in that part of swimming and get frustrated with you know, workouts and endurance swimming and more of the middle and the distance swimming. Yeah, I'm very much of a semi-catch-up coach. But with that understanding that, you know, hey, with sprinters, you have to do this now. Things will change later for you. We'll be right back after this. This segment is brought to you by the J Cafe, located in beautiful Needville, Texas. Drop by for brunch and have yourself an Abbott Button Special. Okay, so I, since you guys are car guys, if you're not keeping up with what's going on with what the Tesla autopilot system really sees, to me, that completely applies to some things we're talking about. Um, I'll send you a link. Um, but Yeah, do. Yeah, I'll send you a link where uh, very briefly, I, I don't remember the exact timing, but Tesla kind of released a, a video of 
what this autopilot system sees. And, and the main idea is that these are cameras identifying things on the road, to the side of the road, and any number of things that are seeing this scenario for the first time. And what really struck home with me, not because it's water related, but just because it is, they, they can quantify. Now, Tesla is quantifying a puddle. Mm. Right? And, and what's reflected in it. <laughs> yeah, and it's quantifying tire spray, and it's quantifying rain, and it has like a blindness factor. So it's not just that these cameras are seeing lines on the road. It's extremely advanced to where, right, it can make decisions. So it must be using some kind of AI. Right. And so as a coach, I really don't want to be sitting here and clicking my stopwatch, right, to analyze a swimmer's swim every time there's a hand hit and then dumping that into, you know, my spreadsheet so I can – I can come up with, you know, the kind of stuff that I sent you. I want to coach. And so it seems to me that USA Swimming, I mean, car companies, not just Tesla, but car companies are becoming tech companies. Other companies are becoming tech companies. Everyone knows how to build a car now. So, you know, um, let's see, who was it? Cadillac, I think. Cadillac has recently partnered with NVIDIA. NVIDIA is like this graphics card Mm -hmm. company, right? Yeah. why can't we, why can't USA Swimming, I mean, if we really want to be at the forefront of swimming fast, have a camera watch the swimmers and it just spits out all that information. I mean, I appreciate, you you know, I have to do all that other. Yeah. I mean, like swim cloud, I think is a start. Swim cloud is doing some things to make it easier where you just press a button and then it logs all that kind of information, but just have a camera follow these swimmers and it can automatically figure out, you know, like, I mean, if they can come up with a number for what, a, how deep and how wide and what a puddle looks like to a car, you know, certainly they can come up with something like some kind of drag force. You know, this swimmer's drag force is this sure. because the camera sees that he's on an incline, you know, or, or some kind of asymmetrical factor where, you know, one stroke left to right is better put together than right to left or something like that. I really think that's the future of all this is to bring that AI into just visually observing swimmers and you remove the coach from all the data crunching. Do you think that would happen with an above water uh, uh, recording system or will they need underwater also? I think you could get a lot done above, but I mean, cameras are now underwater finally, right? After all these years, at least at the Olympics. Well, we, um, we yeah. know what the refractive um, uh, index is of water. And, and of course, if, it, if this thing can look at puddles, it can, maybe it can eliminate ripples in the water too. Right. That's it. Right. Like this, this, you know, slap factor, right. This swimmer is crossing over and slapping the water. I mean, I mean, if Tesla can do it, you know, they're on a mission is why they're successful. They're on a mission to, to do these things. And I just, like I say, I just kind of see that, like you asked me how much time it takes me to analyze a, a swimmer's video. I don't, I really don't want to be spending an hour and a half with an Excel spreadsheet in front of me and kind of tidying up <laughs> the numbers. Cause I want to get to the outcome, the Olympic, organization in the U.S. should be looking at stuff like that because it just makes our jobs easier. It's going to make swimmers faster, faster. We need more tech at the top. Yep, absolutely. It's pretty cool. It is cool. It's super cool. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for spending your time with us on this podcast. We really enjoyed it. And we'll be back right after this. 
Did your swim program have an innovative solution to the restrictions that resulted from the COVID-19 pandemic? If so, we want to hear from you. Please shoot us an email with the best days and times to Skype. Remember to include your Skype username. Email us at swimtalk.a2b at gmail.com. Questions, comments, and winning lotto numbers can be sent to our email, swimtalk.a2b at gmail.com. That's swimtalk.a, the number 2, capital B, at gmail.com. Join us for the next episode of Swim Talk when we welcome 1980 Olympic team member and CEO of Go Swim, Glenn Mills. See you next time.